Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And today I'm speaking with Carolyn White. Dr. White is a professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada, where she also serves as the Mamie Kleberg Chair in Historic Preservation and serves as the Director of the Historic Preservation Program. We will be discussing her latest book, The Archaeology of Burning Man, The Rise and Fall of Black Rock City, which came out with the University of New Mexico Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Carolyn. Thanks so much for having me. First, why don't we start by just hearing a bit about yourself. Tell us uh, your background and how you became interested in anthropology and in archaeology. Well, sure. I, um, as you said, I am an archaeologist and I grew up in rural Maine. I found myself about as far away from home as possible here in Nevada. Um, And as a college student, I took pretty much intro to everything without knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I'm not one of those archaeologists who grew up knowing that I wanted to be an archaeologist. I didn't even know that archaeology existed until I started looking at colleges. And so when I was an undergrad, I was very interested in history and material culture and anthropology and discovered that if you went into historical archaeology, you could do all of those things all at once. So that's sort of how I began to be interested in archaeology. And then I went on a field school um, with Dr. Mary Beaudry, and that was the beginning of my commitment to historical archaeology. Um, I loved being outside. I loved looking at the small things that we found. I, I liked the sort of tedium and preciseness of the field work. And I also really enjoyed working on sites of the recent past. Um, my early days were looking at 18th and 19th century material culture. 
and trying to really see the daily life of how people lived. And that was uh, kind of how I began my career. After graduate school, um, I got a job here at the University of Nevada in Reno and moved west. And so my focus shifted from New England and daily life and personal identity there to exploring different ideas of how those same themes could be represented in the American West. So I've been out here for about 15 years and been exploring different aspects of the past in Nevada, but also kind of all over the place. And what drew you to the topic of this book? Why Burning Man specifically? Well, I this started out as a side project. I was working out in the Black Rock Desert with an archaeologist who worked for the Bureau of Land Management. And we were studying a Depression-era mining town. Um, and so we were there recording the cabins and the structures that people lived in during the Depression as they were kind of eking out a living, mining for gold in the 30s and 40s. And at, as August approached, there started to be a lot of kind of dust being kicked up. And I was, I was quite confused by this, asked him what was going on. He said, oh, yeah, they're setting up for Burning Man over there. And I'd heard about Burning Man when I still lived on the East Coast for my brother-in-law. And it was something that was completely uninteresting to me at that time. I, uh, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it was. But now that I found myself so close to it, I was kind of curious to see what this place was like. And I had also in my mind that I wanted to begin a contemporary archaeology project. I didn't really know what that would be. I was just interested in using some of the same principles that I had been invoking to study the past, to study the present. And when I got to Burning Man, I knew that I had a perfect site for looking at the contemporary world through an archaeological lens. So the um, the BLM archaeologist, Dave Valentine, took me to Burning Man uh, for the first time. And I was just so amazed by this place. First of all, it was in a otherworldly location located on the playa on the ancient dry lake bed of Lake Lahontan. And I was imagining something completely chaotic and kind of like a free-for-all camping situation or something like that. But what I saw there was this incredible organization and infrastructure that was so carefully planned and laid out, but had this kind of chaotic nest that overlay it. And so I was immediately taken with the kind of structures that allowed this chaos to exist. And that was the beginning. That was in 2006. And so every year since then, up to 2016, I returned to, to study this place. You touched on this a little bit just now, but for in case anyone who's listening is, is not really aware of what Burning Man is, or maybe has heard vaguely, sort of like what you were saying, has heard vaguely about Burning Man, but doesn't really know many of the details, 
what is Burning Man exactly? What goes on in the northwestern Nevada desert every year? Why is it even called Burning Man? These are all excellent questions and, <laughs> and ones that are surprisingly hard to define yeah. and to answer. Um, because Burning Man is uh, an event that is kind of a place, kind of a commemoration, and kind of a free-for-all. Uh, it happens once a year in August um, into September over Labor Day weekend. And Burning Man takes place in a place called Black Rock City, which is a temporary city that's built once a year in the Black Rock Desert and where about 75,000 people gather and live for one week uh, as they anticipate the culminating event, which is Burning Man, where there is a giant 40 foot or more wooden man at the center of this city. And burning the man, the wooden man, is this culminating event. Um, the city is structured, as I said, around this, this sculpture, for lack of a better word, and is kind of laid out carefully. Um, and within the city, it, it's kind of anything goes. Um, Burning Man is a place that is organized around 10 principles. And so it is a place where there's no commerce, so no money is exchanged. Uh, there's no commodification. It's a place where everyone is supposed to bring absolutely everything that they need. So that's one of the principles is radical self-reliance. And it's also a leave no trace event. And the aesthetic of Burning Man is kind of uh, so hard to describe because it's so many things, but there is massive art that's um, laid out on the playa. People build theme camps or individual camps. So you can visit people's camps and sort of see what they're up to. Um, and there are different zones of domestic space, of dance clubs. Um, and there are things like art cars that roam the streets, uh, sometimes throwing fire burnable art installations, um, also massive theme camps that look like they came right out of the, the screen when you're watching Blade Runner. Um, so while it is hard to just, it's sort of all of those things all at once. And it's a city of 75,000 people. So the experience of Burning Man is, is almost as varied as the people that that go there people kind of define their own experience but the what goes on is people go to this place they set up homes they live in the place and then they leave um, and so it's there for just one week um, a year I have many more questions about what <laughs> what exactly goes goes down at Burning Man. But before we get to those, can you talk a little bit about the history of this event? How did it begin and where did it begin? And how has it changed over the, what, like 30 years or so since it began? Yeah. Uh, well, Burning Man began in 1986 in San Francisco. It started on a place called Baker Beach, which is near the Golden Gate Bridge. And Larry Harvey 
and his friend Jerry James went to the beach one evening. They had built a man and a dog out of wood in their garages, and they dragged the thing to the beach and set up a bonfire and burned that man and the dog. Um, and the original meaning of that event is speculative. I'm not going to I comment on what it might mean, but the kind of ethos of that original event was that people kind of came together to see what was happening and strangers joined. Um, and that vibe of, of celebration and spectacle was something that really sunk in for the participants. So uh, Harvey and James started to do this every year. Um, so they did it again in 1987. And then in 1988, it be, was publicized by a group called the Cacophony Society in San Francisco. And more and more people started to come. By 1990, 800 people gathered at this event on the beach and the police got involved and it was just too big, too much. So while they were allowed to raise the man in that in 1990, the uh, the burning of the man was shut down. But the Cacophony Society folks knew about this place called the Black Rock Desert, where you could kind of get away with a lot. <laughs> they it's described as a place where you could kind of sit around and blow stuff up, which is still part of the ethos of Burning Man. So they moved this event to the Black Rock Desert in 1990 over Labor Day and started to raise this wooden man and burn the man year after year after year. And so by about 1996, uh, there are about 8,000 people at the event, um, and there started to be some issues with safety um, and just getting permission from the government who, who runs and operates the, the playa. And they started to make some rules about what was allowed and wasn't allowed. For example, they outlawed guns for the first time. Um, they started to plan the city um, and just enforce things like tickets. In 1998, I think is a really critical year because that's the year that the city was designed. And just to describe the layout of the city, it's, it's structured like a clock with radial and concentric streets. So the city is a clock with um, those radial streets with six, uh, six o'clock at the bottom, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, um, and so on. And so that form was established in 1998. Uh, by 2004, they established the ten principles that I mentioned. So things like radical self-reliance, um, leave no trace, no commerce, um, th those sorts of things. Uh, in 2011, they established uh, a BlackRock LLC, and um, more recently, it has gone to be a complete nonprofit event. 
but the the way that it's changed over the years is that it has gotten bigger, 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 I think is the biggest way that it's changed. Um, you know, they started out with a, a, just a few hundred people out on the playa, and now it is a city of 75,000. And, you know, there are many other ways that it's changed in terms of the emphasis on the art, I think, has really expanded through the years. There's a lot of money that is involved in Burning Man, and a lot of that money actually goes to fund artists to build and bring things to the playa. So that emphasis has really shifted. There are other issues like the Instagram mess of Burning Man, which um, a lot of people complain about. But I don't think that that has actually changed all that much. It's just simply given it a lot more publicity. I think one thing that has made a big difference is um, crowd fundraising, crowdsourced funds, um, which has allowed a lot of people to build kind of bigger and more spectacular installations out on the playa. And but you've Burning been to Man, Burning Man um, many times. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was just going to, yes, I have been many times. There's a, there's a joke, kind of a running joke about Burning Man that the, the, that the last best year is the first year that you go. So uh, everyone complains that Burning Man changes, but really it's got a lot more uh, the same than, than it being different. And the, the size of the city is, is dictated in a lot of ways by the, the space out there. Um, Burning Man works very closely with the Bureau of Land Management to figure out how many people can be there safely, what size it can be, so that the growth is controlled in that sense. Gotcha. I, I have uh, another question about sort of the history of Burning Man, and I'm coming at this as a, as a, as a historian, um, not mm -hmm. an archaeologist myself, and any time you have an event like this or an institution like this that that has that, that sees the kind of changes that you're describing, you know, there's always people who are not on board with those changes. And I'm wondering if just briefly you could talk about, you know, I don't want to call them Burning Man dissidents or anything so dramatic, but are there people that have kind of resisted a lot of these changes that you're describing? You know, that is one thing that I've always been interested about Burning Man. Um, mm -hmm. When you go to Burning Man, and as I said, I've gone for so many years, I always kind of want the inside scoop about what people think that they might not want to be saying, you know, so, so publicly. And that's one of the reasons why I really love archaeology is because you're not reliant on people's narratives, you have the material culture to underscore what it is that people do. But People are very enthusiastic at Burning Man. Um, for so long, some of my questions were about what they did not like about the way that it had changed. And it was really difficult to find people who who were, not, were displeased with the changes at Burning Man. And I think there are a few reasons for this. One is the people who become disenchanted just stop going. It takes a huge amount of effort to go to Burning Man. So if you're not interested in what the changes that are happening, I think people just elect to stay home. And that's 
kind of filters out people who are who are disenchanted. The other thing is that you can really make your own experience there. I think that at the beginning when people start going, they might kind of program themselves to have one set of experiences. But then as time goes on, they they might shift. So for example, the first few years you might go to the dance clubs or you know spend lots of time being out all night and 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 participating in the nightlife as time goes on some people after they've made friends and kind of settle into the way that they want to experience burning man spend a lot more time at home in the domestic space that they build or focused on the camp life as opposed to the city life so while there is a lot of grumbling certainly about oh you know for example paris hilton's consistent attendance at burning man or you know the zuckerberg effect of the plug-and-play camps those sorts of things for most people um they're not that affected by those changes and i think that there is a quite a bit of open communication between the burning man organization and the people that go to Burning Man um, to address the complaints about uh, the influx of money and that sort of thing. But just one thing about that influx of money is that Burning Man has always been very expensive to attend and it takes a lot of funds to run different components. So there has always been a kind of funding through Silicon Valley resources, I think that has infused a lot of Burning Man. So it's it's not really something that's new, but it is something that catches the attention of the media regularly. And I think that's where I'm kind of approaching this question from, is that the narratives about Burning Man that are that kind of pop up in mainstream news sources, they, you know, c- Comparing those to the event that you describe in the book, there's a real stark difference there. And that's something we can maybe talk about a little bit later. But uh, that was one of my big takeaways from the book is that there's more to Burning Man than what you see on, I don't know, Yahoo News or (laughs) wherever you might see it reported on a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I was really interested in was that I had kind of heard about the fantastical sides of Burning Man. You see you see pictures of the man burning, you see pictures of people kind of posing in costumes or um, maybe even aerial shots of the city. But on the ground, there is this way that life at Burning Man is, as I said, sort of about being at home. And the ways that people construct home is, is what really stuck out to me as, I mean, it's kind of one big chunk of the book is kind of looking at the different ways that people develop domestic space. And of course, the domestic space is not possible without the underlying infrastructure. And that is what the what the Burning Man organization kind of brings to the table is that they create this kind of map that then the participants fill in. And so there's a lot of kind of dialogue between the the structural underpinnings and the and the way that people experience the event, which is through the things that they bring and build and live in and experience. 
So before we get into uh, some of these more on the ground questions about the concept of, of home and the different uh, domiciles that people build there and the infrastructure of the place, I have one kind of other, uh, one more overview kind of top down question. And as I said a second ago, I'm coming at this book from the perspective of uh, someone trained in the discipline of, of history and the methods of history. And I thought that your first chapter or so of the book where you talk a bit about the methods of archaeology and specifically archaeology of a contemporary place, I found that really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm a little ashamed to say I don't know much about archaeology as a field and even less about contemporary archaeology. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to do archaeology of a contemporary and indeed of a temporary place. Sure. Uh, yeah, contemporary archaeology is kind of this umbrella for two different kinds of archaeology. One is just looking at the very recent past, and then the other is what I call active site archaeology, which I think Bernie Man fits into. But I, when people hear archaeology, they often think about um, people working in the uh, Greek or Roman world or studying the ancient Maya and kind of gently brushing away uh, dirt from pottery or something like that. Um, the kind of archaeology that I was trained in that I've always done is historical archaeology, which uses many different strands of information to study the past. So as I said, my original training was looking at the 18th century in New England and looking at the material record that we get from the ground, as well as written sources and visual sources to understand the past. And so my training was already a kind of weird archaeology that people that sit next to you on airplanes don't understand. And so then to go to contemporary archaeology, again, it's even more confusing because in this kind of archaeology shares even more with cultural anthropology and that the people that live in the place are alive. Um, I can talk to them. But at the same time, it is still very much an archaeological lens on the recent past or the present. So within contemporary archaeology, people might look at things that sites that were abandoned or existed, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But in this case, this is looking at an active site. So it's a place where people are living, walking around, uh, building at the time that I'm trying to get a handle on what it looks like. So I do the same kinds of things in the field at Burning Man of recording the sites that people live in, uh, looking at the material world that they create, making maps, uh, collecting some artifacts. Um, but I have the advantage of being able to talk to people and at least get a little bit of information about their background, or sometimes see the physical difference between what they think they're doing and what the material world tells me that they're doing. Um, and it is also, because this is a temporary place, it's really one of the few ways to understand the city is to look at it while it, it exists. Because Burning Man is, as I 
mentioned a leave no trace event. And for an archeologist, that is our, our biggest nightmare. We depend on people's trash to understand how people live. So if you take everything away, there's, there's not going to be much left to understand Burning Man in the future. So it's, it's sort of an archeology span of the future and that I'm studying the past before it's the past, if you will. Um, but it's a, I think it's a really exciting new thread within archeology span because the way that archeologists see the world and the way that we see the physical spaces that people live in is, is a, a different perspective than other social scientists who, who look at and talk with people. Um, and I really enjoy that part of, of contemporary archeology. span I thought it was a pretty exciting methodology to read about too. And I really like that description that, that you used a, a couple minutes ago about doing the kind of work that people that sit next to you on airplanes have a hard time understanding. I gotta remember to use that sometime. That was, that was very <laughs> apt. I know the feeling well. Um, <laughs> So let's talk a bit about the life cycle of Burning Man and of Black Rock City. How is this city born anew uh, uh, once again every August or September every year? How does the city come together each year? Well, the city is late, begins to be laid out in August each year. There's a ceremony where the Burning Man organization assembles out on the playa um, and there's a golden spike ceremony where everyone who's going to be, who's involved in running Burning Man um, gathers and talks about the community and they place a stake in the ground where the man will stand. And that is kind of the center point of the city. Following that for about a month before Burning Man starts, the infrastructure is laid out. So first they build the boundary of the city, um, which is uh, uh, octagon or pentagon, actually, sorry, a pentagon around the city. Um, and then they start to lay out the streets and then they start to fill things in with building the man, um, figuring out the sort of zoning. They build some of the big features like center camp and the temple, which is another big feature at Burning Man. And so that kind of infrastructure happens for about a month. And then Burning Man begins after that, where the city is open and people come and they build their own camps or set ed and install their own art. People live in the city for that week after the week is over and the man is burned and also the temple is burned. Then people leave that, that which is called Exodus. The, the, like any big event, we've all sat in a big traffic jam getting out of a parking lot at a concert or sporting event. Um, Burning Man is like those and that Exodus is a is a big thing where people um, have to get out of the city and travel back south to get to Reno to head to wherever it is that they're going after that. And that's when the next phase of Burning Man happens, which is cleanup and cleanup, just like setup, takes about a month. Um, first, they clear out the big stuff, take down 
center camp, um, get rid of all of the burned material from the man and the temple and start to sweep the playa of all of evidence of the event. And the, the final event, at, which usually happens in Oct early October, is the inspection when the Bureau of Land Management reviews the cleanup efforts of the Burning Man organization and inspects the site to make sure that they've cleaned it up to the standards that are set every year. And I should note that Burning Man passes with flying colors each year. So that's kind of the cyclicality of it. So after everything is kind of trucked off the, the site, um, things kind of move into planning mode for the next year. And um, although nothing happens out on the playa during those other 10 months of the year, when August 1 rolls around again, the crew's ready, they go out, have the golden spike, and it begins again anew. And as you describe in the book, Black Rock City really is a city. It has an infrastructure, and it's uh, it, it, at this point, after 30-some-odd years, it seemingly runs remarkably well. And I'm wondering if you could just describe a bit some of the practicalities of life in this place. Where do people... Uh, get water? Where do they go to the bathroom? All the things that go into living in a place, this happens at Black Rock City, but I can't help but wonder how, how it's even possible. Yeah, and this is sort of the, what I think is just so interesting about Burning Man, because the, the lake, the ancient lake bed where it happens, ancient Lake Lahontan, is just this vast, dry, flat landscape where there are seemingly no signs of life, although there are some shrimp that, that exist when it is hydrated over the winter. But it is a alkali, dusty desert in all, in all sense of the word. And so creating the infrastructure that allows people to come and inhabit the space is, is really what drew me to the event in the first place. So, for example, um, the Burning Man crew, the uh, Department of Public Works lays out the city. And so they have streets, for example, that are laid out, as I said, radially and concentrically that allow people to move throughout the city. So transport uh, kind of those all of those municipal things are what Burning Man is responsible for. So uh, clear well-lined, well-laid-out streets. There are things like porta-potties that structure a lot of how Burning Man works. Um, this is one of the things that I think is just so fascinating about Burning Man is and makes clear for other archaeologists is that how much human waste can kind of structure daily life. This is something we kind of know intrinsically. Um, so they place the porta potties at regular intervals throughout the city. There are also things like gathering spaces. So there's a big, huge tent called Center Camp, where there are spaces for performances and art installations. It's kind of like a big living room for the city. Um, and that's a place that is one of two places in 
in Black Rock City where you can use money to buy things. There's a coffee, uh, there's a cafe in Center Camp that uh, where you can buy coffee, tea, uh, and various drinks, um, and uh, and the money from that goes <clears throat> to fund the prom and other events in the local uh, town of Gerlach is basically goes to the schools there. And the other place where you can spend money is in a place called Arctica, which is where they sell ice. So those are the only two things that are for sale in Black Rock City is ice and coffee. You cannot rely on the on the cafe to get your coffee because the lines are too long, but you can rely on Arctica to get ice. Everything else, the individual needs to bring themselves. So there's no water supplied. There's no um, nothing to buy, so you need to bring everything. But there are other support systems. For example, there are there's a medical tent. So if people have medical issues while they're at Burning Man, you can get um, help from a doctor. There is a kind of there are kind of a couple layers of law enforcement, um, but Burning Man has its own kind of community law enforcement called rangers and they travel around the city to help people who are in distress in various ways um, there is a whole system where you need to register your art car the dmv the department of mutant vehicles so that's another kind of piece of infrastructure there where um, in order to be able to drive an art car in the city, you have to pass the inspection there. There are things like radio stations and um, fire departments and uh, a press tent for all of the media people. So there are lots of these um, kind of sponsored components that are just like, like any city has, uh, these muni municipal functions that are overseen sometimes directly, sometimes more loosely by Burning Man itself. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't have uh, unlimited time here, but I was fascinated by the idea of a bureaucracy at Burning Man. Again, you know, coming at this topic as an outsider, hearing about Burning Man, reading about Burning Man in the media, it sounds very anarchic, very chaotic. But in fact, there is <laughs> like a bureaucracy and there's there's institutions within Burning Man itself, which I just it kind of blew my mind. I thought it was it was really interesting to read about. Yeah, I love that that, again, as I, I can't overstate how important that is to the kind of freeformness of the city, because it the, the way that things work is kind of this mutual trust between the Bureau of Land Management and the Burning Man bureaucracy. And so the law enforcement at in the within the BLM meets regularly with representatives from the different units within Burning Man. Um, I mean, Burning Man has a perimeter and a, a one, one kind of group called Gate and Perimeter. They're the people that oversee people's entry into Burning Man, check tickets, make sure that people aren't carrying contraband things like feather boas, which are outlawed since they make too much trash. Uh, they make too much of a mess. Um, and they also kind of guard the border of Burning Man to make sure that people aren't sneaking in. 
Um, so though all of these kind of structural components are essential to it having that feeling of of kind of chaos and and kind of express yourself however you want within the city. Tell us a bit about the kinds of places that people live in at Burning Man. Um, you spend a, a good deal of time in the book talking about the different kinds of, of homes that people make, these kind of temporary houses that they set up all the way from, you know, basically tents all the way up to to theme camps and, and theme homes. So can you describe kind of the range of domiciles that people construct at this place? Sure. Well, you you outline yes the the most basic, which is you know a person with a tent uh, and themselves kind of making their way at Burning Man, and that is how a lot of people live at Burning Man, just simply in a tent, camping out and and going about their business that way. Um, but but once you start getting groups of people camping together, you start things start to get a little bit more elaborate from um, small theme camps, for example, uh, there's so many examples of, of just a few friends kind of coming together, developing a theme for their camp and kind of adhering to it. So one of the ones that I talk about a lot in the book is Jungle Camp, which is a very loose, loosely organized theme camp. But it's a, a kind of a extended family of about 10 people that camp there. And it's uh, headed by a couple who have a uh, an RV and they set up a open space in front of that RV where they cook and eat together, but mostly just hang out, kind of sitting sitting outside, welcoming people to visit them and hanging out in their space. And then behind that RV, there are um, a number of these yurts that are a very popular housing form at Burning Man, made out of panels of insulation that are taped together that offer good protection from the heat, but also if it gets cold, they offer some warmth and um, are able to keep, you're able to keep the dust out quite well. And so that that theme camp is just a, a group of, as I said, about 10 people who eat together, live together, and have some decorations that are jungly in their camp. Um, so that's kind of the midsize, small to midsize. But you get up into very elaborate villages, these theme villages, um, like the one that I've camped with for many years, which is called Alternative Energy Zone. And this is a this is one of the largest villages in Black Rock City. It has about I would say 100 to 200 people that live in that village, and that is kind of like a mini city within a city, because within it's abbreviated AEZ, the mayor of that camp will lay out where individuals are going to camp within it. So you have small camps that make up this this bigger city, bigger village. And uh, the only thing that really holds people together is that there is no generator. So people use solar or wind to power um, anything that they need power for, or 
plenty of people just don't power anything in particular. <laughs> um, but it is takes up a whole city block. It's quite organized. And within that, um, there might be a, a kind of center gathering place for people there. AEZ is relatively low tech. There are some quite elaborate camps that have far more people like Nectar Village, which has these huge tents within tents. Um, and so the scale can vary quite a lot. I think one of the most remarkable that I've seen is a place that was called Troy, which was a five-story building essentially made out of scaffolding <laughs> that was small apartments that people could basically rent before they got to the playa and live in these these small apartments and that was a, a, a monumental structure that last one in particular sounds amazing i want to i want to see what what that what that looked like my goodness yeah that it was that was there for a couple years um hmm. and it was yeah it was just really impressive it was this massive scaffolding just with with the apartments kind of separated by um, shade cloth in between the individual apartments. And I talked to two people who lived there, um, these, you know, college friends, and they had just their little cots with their sleeping bags inside. But it was kind of this great setup that that really worked and really seemed like an apartment building. Yeah. So I know this next question is, is difficult, maybe bordering on impossible to answer, but I'm wondering if you could give a brief snapshot of what day-to-day -day life is like at Burning Man, with the understanding that obviously it's it can be radically different from one person to the next, but what, what are the sights and the smells and just the, the rhythms of daily life at this event? Sure. Um, yeah, I, you're right that, that it's different for different people. And I think it depends on how old you are, how many years you've been going to Burning Man, what your interests are, of course. But there is definitely a rhythm at Burning Man. My my life is often runs counter to the rhythm at Burning Man, because when I'm there, I get up very early so I can see spaces when people are kind of not out and about. In fact, many people are kind of going to bed as I'm getting up at sunrise before it gets too hot. The morning's very quiet at Burning Man because people are still sleeping. And um, because it's so hot there, the daytime activity actually can be quite slow. So people are kind of um, nestled in their domestic spaces during the day. Um, there is a very big book that's distributed at Burning Man called The Who, What, Where. And that describes all of the different activities that you can participate in at Burning Man. So someone might go to a yoga class or to a religious um, uh, event during the day, or just kind of ride their bikes around the city to take, take things in. They'll spend part of the day kind of eating and resting and kind of taking things slow while things are hot. Um, but then as the sun sets 
things start to pick up a little bit. So you might in the late afternoon go to, for example, Sun Tracker Camp where they have a margarita bar every day at three o'clock and you'll go with bringing your own cup and have a margarita that is blended with wind power <laughs> and then move on and um, hear someone give a TED talk for example. So there are many different activities, either organized or not super organized, that happen throughout the day. At night, things become much more of a spectacle. Um, there are a lot of interactive things that you can do at Burning Man. Um, you can go to the Thunderdome, that where you can see people kind of flying on uh, harnessed cables and uh you know beating each other up with uh i don't know those cl flying club sorts of things um and people are at at night the the city is illuminated with all kinds of lights uh things are moving um people are uh riding around the city with their flamethrowers there may be different pieces of art installations that are burned on any given night. And then people might go to some of the many dance clubs that exist on the outskirts of the city. So there are a lot of big um, dance clubs with big DJs that are there that are pretty elaborate builds in and of themselves with, again, flamethrowers and lights and great music. So you might um, find yourself in one of those places until the sun rises. Um, so, and then you might, you know, go past the lonely archaeologist who's been sleeping through all of that, going out to photograph some <laughs> some part of the of the city on on your way home. <laughs> there is a I mean, lot to do. Yeah, yeah there's a it, lot it sounds of activity. Like it. <laughs> Uh, this this book has convinced me that I want to go to Burning Man. It's, it sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. It is a lot. It is a great amount of fun. And there's something new to see every year. Um, yeah. But there's also kind of something wonderful about the quiet and the peaceful side of Burning Man because it, it does share a lot of those nice things about camping and just kind of talking to individual people. There are people... Uh, that you see every year at Burning Man um, that you don't see anytime else. And it is a really special place for people to kind of reunite with close friends that are, that they've made in that place. So as we begin to wrap up, um, I'm curious what you think the future holds for Burning Man. We talked earlier um, in this interview about how the stories about the changing nature of Burning Man and how it's not what it used to be, how those are, are typically, they don't match up with the reality of what it's actually like on the ground. And I know you might be hesitant to make predictions about the future, but I mean, we've just come through an, an ongoing, of course, pandemic. I'm wondering how that may have changed Burning Man and what possible directions you think this, this event and this city and this place might go in in the future. Well, I think it's an interesting crossroads because Burning Man was canceled for the second time this past year. Um, but a lot of people actually went out to the playa and celebrated a sort of renegade Burning Man. And 
I wasn't able to go, but the folks that I do know who went really loved the scale of it. You know, it was kind of like Burning Man before Burning Man really caught on. Um, I think that Burning Man will come back, I hope, uh, if we imagine kind of life returning to normal at some point. And I think that there is every intention of having the full event next year. The size of Burning Man is, as I said before, somewhat limited by just the, the scale of the space that it can occupy on the playa. Um, so I think that we will see Burning Man happen very similarly to the way that it has, but I also think that maybe people will not be so interested in being in such massive crowds. Um, and so there may be some more kind of splinter events that happen at different times of the year. That would not surprise me. But I think that we will also see um, the event return, um, be very similar to what it was and begin to kind of progress as it as it was before. I think that the kind of Instagram and plug and play side will be modified a little bit. I think we've probably seen the peak of that. But as word spreads about what Burning Man is and people become more interested in going, like, you know, history professors in Minnesota now want to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> We there's there's kind of a lot of people that still will make their way there um, at some point, and some will become burners, and some will have gone just for a single year. But I think that um, I think that the drive to continue Burning Man in the form that we've seen um, won't change all that much. I think I think we'll see it return pretty much as it was. But I, I do think that we'll see some more, some more splinter groups of smaller events. And then as a wrap-up question, I often like to ask my guests uh, if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding and thinking about into the future, what might that be? Well, I will, I'm going to cheat and say two takeaways. I think one is about Burning Man itself. And to know that Burning Man is not just like a big rave, a big party, that it is a city with its different elements, with houses and municipal features, and that it is uh, the city itself is something that is interesting. And then the second one is that active site archaeology is something that is really interesting. And I, this is maybe speak more to the academic side of things, but that by turning an archeological lens onto the present, we can understand a lot more about the past, um, about the future, about ourselves, and really see how the way that we live is representative of kind of the ideas that we have about the world. 
And then finally, I have two questions about yourself and your future. Um, I like to try to get a preview from my guests and hear what they are maybe working on next. And this book has been out for about a year and a half now. I'm curious what you've been working on in the interim. And then second, and possibly related to, to that question, I'm wondering if you'll be attending Burning Man again in the future, uh, if, it, if the event is held in... Uh, uh, 2022, if you'll attend, or maybe some other time in the future, either in a role as an academic or just kind of go in because you've been so many times and you want to keep going. <laughs> well, I'll answer the first, the second question first. And yes, I'm dying to get back there. I'm, I have not been able to go since the book came out. And I want to kind of share my results with people there. I mean, I've shared it out off Playa, but I would like to do that um, there. And I would like to go to Burning Man without the same pressures of gathering data. I think it would be really fun to just participate in Burning Man as, as a burner for the first time, instead of as a burner and researcher. Um, and what I'm working on next, actually, Burning Man's, the Burning Man work has really influenced the direction of the work that I'm doing. I've been most recently working in Italy um, taking this idea of looking at temporary spaces and the ways that people create domestic life in those temporary spaces. And I've been looking at squatted buildings in contemporary Rome and looking at how people have refashioned places like salami factories or abandoned office buildings into domestic spaces um, and re refurbished them, recreated them for people on the fringes of, of Roman society into homes. So I'm currently working on a book about that, of looking at those domestic spaces. That sounds fascinating. And I immediately have a million questions about that as well. But we'll have to leave that for a different interview, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to come back when I can get some of that work out into the world. That, sound, that sounds great. Dr. Carolyn White is a professor of anthropology and the Mamie Kleberg Chair in Historic Preservation at the University of Nevada at Reno. Her latest book is The Archaeology of Burning Man, The Rise and Fall of Black Rock City, which came out with the University of New Mexico Press in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Carolyn. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.